God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your kindness to us. God, we thank you that you are great and glorious, a conquering king. Lord, indeed, you are the creator of everything, and this world is in your hands. And we do praise you for this. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand the things that you have revealed in your word. Give us discernment and understanding. Help us, Father, to see these things rightly. And, Lord, I I pray that you would impress them upon our hearts according to your word, according to your desire. God, help us to be evangelical, zealous Christians who want to serve you and love you and who are eagerly awaiting your return and who are not ignorant of the things which are to come. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for the freedom to be here in this place and to talk about your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, last week we we ended defining what was the pre-tribulational view of the timing of the rapture in regard to um, the sequence of events that play out uh, right toward the end of uh, the days. And if you will, the handout I gave you this morning which says variant views and key differences, we're going to be looking at that right now. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go through and I'm going to define these four views. Now, you remember these four views. I have a chart on the back of the original handout on premillennialism. That's, that's got a chart, basically, of all four views that we're going to cover this morning. Now, there are many more views than this, but if you will, these are the general position of, of, of most premillennialists. They fall into one of these camps, Okay. And so um, I'm going to go through and try and explain these, and then I'm going to go through and and try to uh, talk about all of the issues and the key differences and why some of these views are variant. Okay, so just real quick in redefining where we left off last week in the pre-tribulational view of the timing of the rapture. Now remember, we are now talking about premillennialism. So we are saying by virtue of all our discussion this morning, We're talking about the fact that at the second coming of Christ, he inaugurates a thousand-year millennial kingdom where he reigns as king on the earth from a throne in Jerusalem. That's his millennial kingdom. At the end of that time, there will be a deception of the nations, as it says literally in Revelation 20, um, and that... They, that deception of the nations and subsequent war against the saints in Jerusalem, that they will be defeated supernaturally by God, and that at that time there will be a final judgment, at which time we will enter into the eternal state. So all of these things are, are agreed upon by premillennialists. Okay? So the issues of of contention between the different camps when we start talking about the timing of the rapture, those arguments center around the last seven years of the time before the return of Christ, which is commonly referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. And we read from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, 
which talks specifically about the 70 weeks last week and the fact that at the midpoint of that time that there would be a, a covenant that was uh, confirmed between Antichrist and the people of Israel and that at that time there would be an abomination which causes desolation set up and that the... Uh, that that also, at that midpoint of that 70th week, when the abomination of desolation is set up, that there that this was a desecration of the true worship of, true worship of God, and that during that time, um, the the there would be a covenant either made or broken, depending on how you you view that scripture, and. Um, that this was a defining moment in that 70th week. And it, it specifically in Daniel chapter 9, it makes a division in that 70th week between these two time periods. And this is where we're going to be focusing this morning. <coughs> if you have a question about the topic that we are talking about at the moment, raise your hand and I'll try to address it rather quickly. If you have a question that does not deal with the topic we're talking about at the moment, I'm going to have a 15-minute time at the end of the class where we're going to go over questions and things, okay? <clears throat> so, the pre-trib view, basically, in the pre-tribulational view, the rapture happens before the 70th week of Daniel and the Great Tribulation. Thus, the church does not go through the Great Tribulation. Also, they make a sharp distinction between Israel and the church and insist that God cannot be dealing with both groups during Daniel's 70th week. So talking about pre-tribulationalism, they, a pre-tribber would say that the rapture happens right here prior to the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? And also, they make a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, and they would say that the church age is actually what is called in the Scripture the times of the Gentiles. And that when that time ends, God again begins His dispensation of dealing with Israel again in the 70th week. And that they, this sharp distinction is drawn here because they say that the church is taken out so that the rapture becomes the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles and of the church age and that now God begins his dispensation of dealing with Israel again in the 70th week. This is the common position of classic dispensationalism. And of course, in dispensationalism, they're making these distinctions between different time periods in the history of man where God is dealing with man. And so, thus you have uh, dispensation of, of, uh, of grace, the times of the Gentiles, ends right there and the program of God with Israel takes up and begins in the 70th week. This is the pre-trib position. Okay? All right. So, then there's another variation of this, which is called the mid-trib position. The mid-trib position. And, of course, a mid-tribber would see the, the rapture happening right here at the midpoint of the tribulation. Or, or in their view... They define the tribulation as this 70-year, 70 70th week of Daniel, which is a seven-year period. So the mid-trib view sees the 70th week of Daniel as the great tribulation, the whole seven years, and they believe the rapture happens right at the midpoint. 
Let me give you a brief definition. In the mid-tribulational view, the rapture happens at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel and before the Great Tribulation, which is defined as the last three and a half years. I'm sorry, I gave you wrong info there. So, in the mid-trib position, they would call this little time period in the last three and a half years as the Great Tribulation. Okay? And they're saying that the rapture happens right before that time period. Okay? Right at the midpoint. So the Great Tribulation, which is defined as the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Thus, the church does not go through the Great Tribulation. So in the mid-trib view, the church is raptured just prior to the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of the 70th week. Okay? Everybody got that? Mid-trib rapture view. (coughs) Clear as mud? Okay. The next one would be the post-tribulational view. The post-tribulational view. This is the one where the, the actual the tribulation is viewed as a seven-year period. Okay? Let me read you a definition. Post-tribulational view. In the post-tribulational view, the rapture happens after the 70th week of Daniel and the Great Tribulation. Thus, the church will go through the Great Tribulation In this view, the rapture and the second coming are the same event. So then, in the post-trib view, they see the rapture happening right here at the very end of the 70th week at the the same time as the second coming. So, in this view, they're the same event. So, the rapture and the second coming are the same event in the post-trib view, and it happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay. Now, make a distinction here between the pre-trib view and also the mid-trib view, which both see the rapture and the second coming as separate events. Okay. So, in, in the pre-trib view, Christ comes for his church at the beginning of the seven-year uh, period, and then he comes with his church at the second coming. Okay. That's pre-trib. Mid-trib, he comes for his church at the middle of the seven-year period, okay, and with his church at the second coming. In the post-trib view, he comes for and with his church at the same time, at the second coming, okay? So there you have the post-trib view. Okay, and lastly there, on the handout, we'll talk about the pre-wrath view. Now, one thing I neglected to tell you this morning, you see that certain things have been highlighted on this paper? That is my view of premillennialism. Okay, so I tried to highlight it for you so that as we're going through this, you can see where I'm coming from. And then at the end of the class, I'm going to kind of give a brief defense for my view. And... Um, so I kind of went ahead and highlighted this stuff in writing so you could see where I'm standing, okay? And um, so also then, this is my view on the timing of the rapture. I'm going to explain it right now. It's called pre-wrath. It was popularized first by a guy by the name of Marv Rosenthal, and then second and even more popularly, I think, by Robert Van Campen. 
And uh, since that time, there's been quite a few other variations of this that have been that have come out, and it's it's quite a popular view at the moment. Pre-wrath view. In the pre-wrath view, the rapture happens during the 70th week of Daniel, and after the great tribulation, which is distinguished from the day of the Lord. God's wrath on the unbelieving world. Thus, the church will go through the great tribulation but not through the wrath of God. In this view, the rapture and the second coming are the same event. So let me explain real quick. There's a sharp distinction made in the pre-wrath view between the great tribulation and the day of the Lord, which is the wrath of God. And in the pre-wrath view, those two events both happen in the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Typically. So, what you have is a period of time which is called the Great Tribulation. Then you have another period of time which is called the Day of the Lord. In the Great Tribulation, you have what is, is referred to as the wrath of Satan or the persecution of the church under the hand of Antichrist and his rise to power. And then you have what is referred to as the wrath of God, which is here in the second part of that three and a half years, which is referred to as the day of the Lord. Well, there's a distinction made between those two, the great tribulation and the day of the Lord. And in the pre-wrath view, the rapture happens right before the day of the Lord. In fact, the rapture inaugurates the day of the Lord. Okay? So what you have is the church going through the great tribulation, but being delivered prior to the day of God's wrath upon an unbelieving world. Okay? That's the pre-wrath view. Now, obviously there are certain scriptural uh, ramifications behind each one of these views. Everybody's quoting different scriptures to to say that this is the view that the Bible teaches, okay? And we'll, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that. But understand in this view, there is a great distinction made between the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord. Whereas, for instance, in the pre-trib view, the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord happened at the same time. They are the same event. They are, they are included in the same time period. And, of course, we know that uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that the church is not destined for wrath. It also says it again in chapter 5, I, I forget the exact verse, I think it's verse 8 or 7, that says that the church is not destined for wrath. Because of this, we, we believe when Christ comes and pours out his wrath, he's not going to pour out his wrath on his own church. Amen? Amen. So, in any of these views, uh, we, are, we are seeing the fact that God is delivering the church from his wrath. Even in the post-trib view, where you have the, the day of the Lord included in the tribulation, they believe that God will keep the church through that time and protect them from his wrath. Okay, whereas in the other three views, pre-trib, mid-trib, and pre-wrath, they believe the church is raptured off of the earth and then the, the wrath is, is, uh, is, is poured out. Okay? Clear as mud? All right. Okay. So... How are we doing? All right, great. So those are the four views we just discussed and kind of what they look like on a time chart of events. 
So some things to understand in, in coming up with an idea of why are the, do we have these variant views? Well, there are several reasons. I'm going to give you a few. The first one is discussing the Great Tribulation period. Okay, the Great Tribulation period. L let me first read you a definition from Nelson's Bible Dictionary about the Great Tribulation period. It says, A short but intense period of distress and suffering at the end of time. The exact phrase, the Great Tribulation, is found only once in the Bible, Revelation 7.14. The Great Tribulation is to be distinguished from the general tribulation a believer faces in the world. It is also to be distinguished from God's specific wrath upon the unbelieving world at the end of the age. Okay, so um, even here in Nelson's Bible Dictionary, I believe... Uh, the writer of this is a pre-tribber. He actually says there's a distinction between the Great Tribulation and the wrath of God. Nonetheless, some see them fitting into the same uh, time period. Others don't. We'll talk a little bit about that. But the reason for some of the variant views in the timing of the rapture is the fact that people differ on the understanding of the length, the nature, and the timing of the Great Tribulation. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why people see these things happening at different times. Let's talk a little bit about that. The length of the tribulation. So there are different views on how long the tribulation period is. Some see the great tribulation as a seven-year period and equivalent to the 70th week of Daniel. Some see the great tribulation as only the second three and a half years of the uh, 70th week of Daniel. So some say this whole time period here is the Great Tribulation. Some say it's just this three and a half year period. Okay? And then others would say that the length of this time period is not specifically defined in Scripture. And that is, its length is never clearly defined in Scripture. And of course, that's my view. So what I would say, if you ask me, that you cannot look in the Bible and find the length of the tribulation period defined. That nowhere in the Bible does it define the length of the tribulation period. And I would challenge you to do that. When you find that, please let me know. Because <laughs> I need to be corrected. Because I'm saying the Bible does not define that time period. Okay? So, um, let's talk about the nature of the tribulation. Okay, we talk about the length. There are different views on the length of it. This is one of the reasons for the variant views on the timing of the rapture. Well, let's talk about the nature of it. What about the nature of the tribulation? Well, some hold that it includes the wrath of God. So some would say that <clears throat> this whole seven-year period is the great tribulation and that bound up in that time sometime is the wrath of God. Okay? Some hold it is simply the events connected with the rise of Antichrist to power and subsequent persecution and suffering. Of course, this would be my view. I'm saying that this great tribulation period is not defined in length, but that its nature is defined, that during that time period will be a time of intense suffering and persecution of the church at the hands of Antichrist. Okay, um, <clears throat> And then also, some see this section of Revelation chapters 6 through 19 
as an outline of this period. Others see it as others see it only in shorter sections of Revelation. Okay, so get this point. Many dispensationalists have this view. They see this 70th week of Daniel and the seven-year time that some refer to as the Great Tribulation, others just as the Tribulation, whatever. They say that this embodies the section of Scripture of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. So that starting in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 is a, is a sequence of panoramas dealing with this whole 70th week period of Daniel. Okay? Does that make sense? Am I being clear on that? Some people see that that section of Revelation as describing the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Just another thing to bear in mind. <clears throat> okay? Then talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Some see the events connected to the day of the Lord as part of the Great Tribulation. We were talking about this a minute ago, the wrath of God. Some make a distinction between the day of the Lord and the Great Tribulation as two separate time periods. Okay? Um, Let's see. Am I going to give you some scriptures for that? I am. I'm going to give you some scriptures for that here coming up shortly. So understand that that distinction is being made. Then also, what about the Great Tribulation and the persecution and the Tribulation saints? Okay? Think about this. How many of you have heard of the Tribulation Saints? Okay. How many of you know who the Tribulation Saints are? You've heard of them, but you don't know who they are? Or who knows who they are? Okay. All right. Not many. Let me, let, me, let me give you a definition of the Tribulation Saints real quick, right off the top of my head, so don't hold me to the fire here. But in the pre-trib position, what happens is, the rapture happens before the seven-year, 70th week of Daniel. And during this time period is a time period when, according to Revelation chapter 7, the first, I think it's seven verses, there is 144,000 Jews who, in their view, get saved. And these Jews go out and evangelize the whole earth during the time of the 70th week of Daniel. Through their evangelism efforts, this whole company of people gets saved. They believe the gospel. Okay? Unfortunately, what happens is, during that time, Antichrist rises to power. He implements the system of the mark of the beast. And all of these who have believed the gospel at the preaching of these Jewish evangelists are beheaded and martyred. Okay? That's who the tribulation saints are. In the pre-trib view, they are a whole company of people who get saved after the rapture, during the 70th week, but are subsequently martyred for their belief. Okay? The same ones who are raised from the dead in Revelation 20, verses 1 through uh, 6. Okay? Did I give a good definition of the tribulation saints? Yeah? They're they're the people who get saved, not the 144,000. Um... I'm not sure about that. Does anybody know? In the pre-trib view... Yeah, I'm going to do that. In in the pre-trib view, do the Jewish evangelists get martyred? 
Yes? No? I got a yes and a no. Is, was that your question? Oh, my question. Oh, yeah. Oh, are the Jewish evangelists part of the tribulation saints is the question. Anybody know that? Okay. All right. Well, we got to study our pre-tribulationism, folks. Okay. So. Well, if you read about them, they say that they stay with Christ all the time, that they're in his presence. Okay, later on in chapter 14, there's right. a section where they say that he, they are extremely devoted to Christ right. and that they follow him wherever he goes, and there's a lot of descriptive language about them. Okay. Right. Okay, so that's a good question. Ron, good question. Somebody want to look that one up sometime and let us know? I see we're all eager to dive into that. Okay, so so you have tribulation saints, and, and let, me, let me read this. The presence of Christians during this time period and the persecution of them is something almost all premillennialists agree on. So what we're saying is, during this seven-year period, it's very obvious in Scripture that the church is there and that she's being persecuted. Okay, now... Now, some believe that, and, and, and this is the major view, that pre, in pre-trib camp, the, the church from the church age has been raptured and that this presence of the church in this time are the tribulation saints, the people I just described to you. Okay? My view is different than that. I believe that the church will actually go through the tribulation. Uh, and it says here, however, many see these Christians as the church in general whereas others see them as a group called Tribulation Saints made up of people who are saved during the Great Tribulation by the preaching of the believing Jews. So if you will, in the pre-trib camp, the church is raptured. These are those who are left behind and get saved by the preaching of the gospel. Okay? And if you've read Tim LaHaye's books, he has a very distinct discussion of all of these things and makes it rather clear what that view is. What I am saying is that the rapture hasn't happened yet during the Great Tribulation. So that the church is still here. And this is still the times of the Gentiles all the way up until the rapture happens. Okay? So the presence of saints being persecuted in the Bible during the Tribulation, in my view, is simply that the rapture just has not yet happened. But that it will happen before the wrath of God is inaugurated. In fact, the very return of Christ himself is the inauguration. The return of Christ to rapture his church is the inauguration of his wrath on an unbelieving world. Thus the name pre-wrath view. Okay? Yes, Are you dividing the last three and a half years also? Or you're just like the great trib is supposed to be in the first three and a half and the day of the Lord in the last three and a half of the 70th week? So am I dividing or is well, who dividing? Anybody on this last pre-wrath view. Like this is a picture of the pre-wrath view right here. And it should be identical to what you see on your chart there. But you're not putting like you're not putting a line right directly in the middle of the three and a half and saying no. it's this much and this much. Good good point, uh, Lurie. Look here. In the pre-wrath view, this line in the middle is floating. <laughs> because the scripture never defines the length of the great tribulation period okay it simply says that Christ is going to come and rescue his church right in the Olivet Discourse which we'll get to here in a minute but but that that time period is not necessarily defined Jerry? I was going to say in the Olivet Discourse Christ refers to that time period as unless the 
those days had been shortened, no flesh would be saved. Amen. So for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Okay. So he's referring to the the martyrism time of the Antichrist mm-hmm. being shortened. Mm-hmm. And he's going to shorten that time by rapturing the church. Right. And he actually calls it right in the wording of that text that Jerry's referring to. There will be a time of tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time. He says, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And and so, if you will, in this view, that's kind of how that works. But it never specifically defines where in this three and a half year period that line is. And so, thus, Larie's point that that's floating. Okay, is that clear? i got to move on. My man is telling me i got to move on. So let me just say this last thing. There is also an apostasy and a falling away. And this is also included in my view. Many see a fulfillment of a great apostasy and falling away, which will take place before the return of Christ, happening during the time of the Great Tribulation. So in other words, during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be a great apostasy from the faith. There are going to be many people who rebel against the faith and who fall away from the Christian church, from the visible Christian church. Jerry? I wanted to point out that in the middle of the seven-year period is when the Antichrist goes into the temple and does the abomination of desolation. Okay. At that time is when he rolls out 666 as well. Okay. So the pressure is, is really put upon the inhabitants of the earth right in the middle of the week in the seven-year period because that's when the Antichrist demands your allegiance by taking 666. Amen. And I, I wholeheartedly affirm that myself. So that will be the underlying current to the cause of the apostasy and falling away. Right. Because it's going to cost people's lives not to take 666. Right, and if we were to look at this time period very distinctly and spend a few weeks looking at it, what you'd see is is that there's an increasing intensity of events that are happening in this, which culminates in the intensity of Christ returning and destroying a world full of unbelieving sinners. Okay? And it even says of this time, of the Great Tribulation, Jesus says... um, if, if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive, right? But for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. So, and what this is what Jerry's saying. These things are increasing in intensity, and namely because of certain things that happen, like, for instance, the Antichrist being this world leader who has the allegiance of the whole world, according to Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and following. And he implements this system of the mark of the beast, Revelation 13, verses 10 through 15. And because of that system he implements, this persecution happens because part of his system is whoever will not worship his image and take the mark will be killed. Okay? i got to move on. So now we're going to talk about eminency. Eminency. And this is on the back side of your handout from today. Now, eminency is the belief that Christ could return at any moment with no warning signs prior to it. Scriptures used in this view are, and I gave you a whole list of scriptures there, which tell you why premillennialists believe that the return of Christ is eminent. Okay? Now, 
I believe that the return of Christ is imminent. The difference between me and, for instance, somebody that might be in the pre-tribulational camp is the way that we view imminency. Okay? I'm going to try to describe that for you. It is clear from these scriptures that in a certain sense, the Lord's return is imminent. But, but clearly states that we do not know the day or the hour. But to interpret the times and seasons, we should not be unaware or overtaken as the wicked. And the specific reference for that is 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses um, 2 through 6. Okay? <clears throat> However, the Bible also clearly teaches that certain signs will precede the Lord's coming, and that we should be paying attention to these signs as they happen. Okay? So here's a reason why my view of eminency is the way it is. Because the scripture clearly says we should be ready. Christ is returning. We should be eagerly awaiting. And that we don't know when he's going to come. So in that sense, it's eminent. However, the scripture also says that all of these signs are going to precede his coming directly. And here they are listed with the scripture references. The preaching of the gospel to all nations the Great Tribulation Period, the false prophets working signs and wonders, the signs in the heavens, the coming of the man of sin, the great persecution of the church, and apostasy falling away in rebellion. Okay? So what I am saying is, is that the Scripture clearly teaches, in my mind, that those events will happen prior to the return of Christ. And furthermore that uh, therefore we should conclude that as we see these signs coming to pass, we should be eagerly awaiting the Lord's return and our subsequent deliverance. So you, you see, I underline the fact that we see these signs. Okay, so if you're reading about these signs in the scriptures, you will see that it is explicit in the teaching of Christ that we will see these signs. And that's why I make this distinction in the doctrine of eminency. Okay? Now, we probably could spend a couple of weeks talking about this, but I'm just trying to give you what an overview of these things are, as I have been for the last four weeks, okay? So I understand there's a lot of points and things here, but uh, in my view, it is explicit in the teaching of Jesus that these things will happen prior to his return. Okay, and I gave you all the scripture references there. Jerry. And those signs actually parallel... Uh, the seals that are in Revelation chapter 6, so that you see seals 1 through 4 in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then you see seal number 5 occurring right at the middle of the seven-year period because that's when the martyrs are seen under the altar of God. Okay. And then you see with seal number 6, the sign of the beginning of the day of the Lord. Right there. So Jerry is referring to Revelation chapter 6, the whole chapter. And there's there's uh, six seals that are revealed there, right? And and those seals actually parallel to the teaching of Christ in Matthew 24. Okay. And so here's a whole additional piece for you to go and look at. Jerry is saying that, and it, can I call this the pre-wrath view? In the pre-wrath view... There is a parallel between the seven seals 
and uh, and uh, the Olivet Discourse given in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So if you were to look at those two and do an examination of the two, that you would find some very close parallels. And he's pointing out specifically what these things are grabbing a hold of. You might want to make a note of that because this is going to get erased. And, and just one key thing when you look at that, uh-huh. when you see the martyrs under the altar of God at uh, seal number five, uh-huh. you'll see the martyrs crying out for God's wrath to be poured out. And God tells them to wait okay. until the full number of their brothers and sisters come in. Okay. All righty. Everybody got that? Okay. Now I'm going to move on. And uh, we're going to talk about um, the Olivet Discourse. Okay, the Olivet Discourse. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, I, I think Matthew is, gives the most information. Now, I want to tell you something here. I think one of the reasons why I am not a pre-tribber, okay, is because... As I learned pre-tribulational uh, eschatology, I, I was a pre-tribber for, for several years, okay? But as I learned the system more and more, I kept reading these things, which to me didn't seem to add up. So what I found was, in the pre-trib view, the, what they call the backbone of all prophecy, okay, is the, the text in Daniel chapter 9. And what you'll find common among the dispensational view is... They will say that the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 defines all prophecy and that this is the key to understanding prophecy. Well, what I found in my study of the whole book of Daniel, specifically I was looking at chapter 7. It talks all about the Antichrist and and the coming reign of Christ. Chapter 8 talks very specifically, Daniel chapter 8 talks very specifically about the rule and reign of Antichrist. These are great places you can learn. Uh, Chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Daniel also give very specific details about the rule and reign of Antichrist. Well, as I studied the whole book of Daniel, I began to have a lot of questions, specifically at the end of chapter 7, verses 25 and following. It just didn't fit with me, with the things that were being taught about pre-tribulationalism. So... What I, what I did was I, I got really troubled, <laughs> and I, I went on this just this binge of studying these things, and, and um, what I came to, to find out was I, I developed my own kind of view of these things, and what I thought was, well, the disciples are talking with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him the question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so I thought, rather than me trying to rely on some veiled Old Testament prophecy coming from an Old Testament prophet, wouldn't the Lord more clearly identify these things in his clear teaching and in his answers? And and so I began to heavily study the Olivet Discourse. And what I found was, to me, a lot of contradictions with the view that I was being taught where I was at and uh, with the different teachers that I was looking to. And that's kind of what really got me going. But here's what I found. I'm going to read it to you. In regard to eschatological events and their timing and sequence, the most clear passages in all of the Bible are recorded in the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when he told this to his disciples. These passages are Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, and Luke 21. 
the whole chapters in each of those sections is the Olivet Discourse. Okay? In these passages, there are clear chronologies given of events leading up to Christ's return and the end of the age. In fact, these passages are Jesus' answer to his disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So if you will, I developed this little chart that shows a chronology in the verses of Scripture that Jesus gives there in Matthew 24, showing specifically these end-time events happening in a sequence. Okay. Now I have some other text chronology charts that I've made. This happens to be one that will fit on this page this morning. <laughs> so... <clears throat> There it is, okay? And if you will go home and read Matthew 24 and simply look at this chart, I think you'll get a sense of what I'm trying to say here, okay? But one of the key distinctions you might find in my view of the Olivet Discourse and in, the, for instance, the pre-trib view would be verse 30 and 31, where to me I very clearly see the rapture taking place, okay? Where a pre-tribber would say, no, that's not the rapture, that's God gathering the wicked for judgment. Okay? So that's something you might want to look into there. And if you're a pre-tribber, I want to challenge you to take a good hard look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 31, and make sure that you look at that clear teaching of Jesus and you know exactly why in the Bible that's not the rapture. And I would, I would have you look at the other passages in the Bible that talk about the rapture and compare it to the language that's there and see what you come up with. Okay? Jerry? I was going to say, especially First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 through the end of the chapter. Okay, that there would be some very close parallels between First Thessalonians 4, 16 and following, and Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. Okay? Um, and I think if you look at other rapture passages, you'll find other parallels that are very similar to that. Okay. Um, so if you will, uh, I wanted to mention the Olivet Discourse and tell you the things I just told you. And uh, is there any questions on that? Would you like me to clarify anything about the Olivet Discourse? You're saying, Ron? You're saying the rapture and the day of second coming are the same event why would why would he do that why would he do what why would he rapture the church okay and come right back with him okay I don't right so um can you hold that sure. and i will you, answer that first question in the question and answer time that's going to happen right at 10 o'clock okay um anybody else and please yell right at 10 o'clock on your question okay Carl, no, okay. Terry? Yes, ma'am. So what she is, is talking about is in the Olivet Discourse that there is what she calls near and far implications. Okay? I wholeheartedly agree with this. There are near and far implications in the Olivet Discourse. And what that means is is that certain of the things that Jesus spoke of had a near end fulfillment. 
In other words, certain things that he prophesied would happen came to pass before the ending of uh, the the, uh, destruction of the temple in uh, 70 AD. Okay? But that those same things that were fulfilled, as I told you, prophecy has a telescoping effect so that sometimes it's fulfilled once over, twice over, thrice over, four times over, or more. There are places in the scripture where that happens, okay? And that these near and far implications are present in the Olivet Discourse and that, yes, some of them will for, were fulfilled. It is my view that all of the prophecies of Matthew 24 do have a far-end fulfillment, if that helps you clarify where I'm at, that, that they will all see a future fulfillment in the great apostasy and the great uh, eschatology of the end days, right at the 70th week of Daniel. Did I make that clear? Is that clear? Did I answer your question? Jerry, you want to make a comment? Uh, I wanted to ask, did you think the rapture includes the Old Testament believers? Or do you think the rapture is exclusive to New Testament believers? Wow, that's a, that's a good one. I would say right off the top of my head, yes. <laughs> I would say yes, it does. Yes it, yes, it includes Old Testament believers. And I, I'll try to give you a brief defense for that, okay? I, I hold a view of dispensationalism and covenantalism, which is kind of mixed, okay? And one of my views is, is that, that's equivalent with covenantal thought, is that there is a continuity of the whole Bible from beginning to end in the works uh, of redemption by God, that all of the people who are ever saved throughout all of history are all saved basically by the same means, which is faith, which happens because of regeneration, which is God's work in redeeming. Okay, So, if you will, I have what's called a continuous view of the, plan, of the outworking of the plan of redemption. Okay? So because of that, I believe that the Old Testament saints, if you will, are incorporate with the New Testament church and that ultimately we're all going to partake of the same eternal kingdom and the same eternal blessings and the the same fulfillment of all of, of those things, okay? So because of that also, my understanding of the rapture is, is that this is what Revelation 20 calls the first resurrection. And of this first resurrection, the second death has no power. Therefore, the redeemed of all of the ages past before the cross still possess that eternal life in Christ and that secure salvation that cannot be overcome by death because they have been redeemed by God. And that was God's work, not their work. Right? So that they are included and incorporated in that company. Okay? So you could say that the rapture is just an aspect of the first resurrection. In my mind, the first resurrection is the rapture. Well, what I mean by that is there's some that are in the grave that are raised first. Right. And then the rapture itself, if you will. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay, yes. Yes, that's more perfectly correct. So the rapture is just another aspect of the resurrection of the righteous. Right. Does everybody have that? You want me to grab that for a minute? Okay, in other words, it says in 1 Thessalonians, according to the Lord's own word, right, that uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. 
And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. So the point is, is that there's kind of two aspects of it. The one is the dead in Christ rising. The second is the specifically the event called the rapture, whereas the living saints are caught up to meet those dead in the air with Christ. Okay? Did I say that right? Okay? And that, that I'm saying that event together is the first resurrection. And that there'll be a second resurrection at the final judgment of the wicked dead. Okay? All right. I got to move on. I got to move on. So then, there's these brief distinctions. I tried to make some definitions for this. Um, just real quickly, dispensationalism, down at the bottom of your page there. A theological system that began in the 19th century with the writings of J.N. Darby. Among the general doctrines of this system are the distinction between Israel and the church as two groups in God's overall plan, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, a future literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel, and the dividing of biblical history into seven periods or dispensations of God's ways of relating to his people. Okay, that's what dispensationalism is. And that's why it's related to eschatology. It's talking about these eschatological events, okay? Then progressive dispensationalism. And, you know, here's this thing. This is a squirrely thing. Because there are guys all over the place with their definitions of what this is, okay? So I'm going to give you mine, and I'm going to just qualify it by saying that I am not very skilled in the understanding of progressive dispensationalism, so you might want to stone me after class. (laughs) Progressive dispensationalism, a view of dispensationalism which takes into account certain principles of continuity commonly found with covenantalists. Typically, there is a less pronounced distinction between Israel and the church and allows for a mingling of eschatological events for both groups during the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? I got a nod over here. I think I'm in good shape. Okay. Covenantal. Covenantal theology believes that there is and has always been one people of God. They believe that Israel was the church in the Old Testament and that the church is Israel in the New Testament. Thus, the church has replaced Israel. And so also the term replacement theology. You may have heard that. That basically means that the church is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to Israel. That's a feature in covenantalism. Okay? Um, what were promises of land, many descendants, and blessing in the Old Testament to Israel has been converted to spiritual blessings for the church in the New Testament. Okay. Are those definitions clear to you? Are they distinct? Are there any questions about that? Yes. Do you have specific scripture about the covenantal? Can you give, like... What I would do, what I would do is point you to the writings of, of certain covenantalists. I'll tell you what, if you really want to understand covenant theology, go to this website, A Puritan's Mind. A Puritan's Mind. Okay? Now, let me, let me, I'm, I'm sending you to A Puritan's Mind, so let me, let me just give you a qualification, okay? The things that you will find there do not reflect my views entirely, Okay? But there is more info and glorious God-centered teaching on that website than I have seen just about anywhere. However, let me just tell you real quick, I am not a covenantalist uh, overall, okay? 
I, I kind of stand in the middle there. I do believe specific things that dispensational theology lays out, like, for instance, the fact that there will be a future literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel. I believe that with my whole heart, that Christ is going to return. He's going to reign on his throne in Jerusalem. The physical nation, the seed of Abraham, physically is going to live in the land and, uh, and receive their allotted inheritance under the hand of Christ's rule. And that the church will be there in resurrected bodies, ruling over the rest of all of the nations. That's my view. Okay, so that's very different from covenantal view on that. On that, so I'm saying, I there. But I told you about the thing that I do agree with with covenantalism. Okay, and let me also tell you that I'm studying those things right now. I'm I'm pretty involved in a study of those things right now, and. Um, my view could possibly change on some of those things, but the general premise, that's where I stand. Okay? One more comment there. I would say you'd arrive at that if you look at the very objectives of Daniel's 70th week. Okay. In Daniel 9. Right. You'll see the objectives that these things are going to be completed when the 70 weeks of years is accomplished. Right. Okay. I, I would agree with that. Let's see. Your question, Ron. Okay, now, if you have questions on where I stand, right now is the time. we got about uh, 12 minutes. And uh, so think of what your question is. I'm going to try to answer it. Or if you have any questions about the pre-wrath view, um, no doubt we can answer those. And your question was? You mentioned that in the pre-wrath view, the church is raptured and returned to the earth. And it's the same event. same event. Right, okay. Why, why would he do that? I want to turn you to Matthew chapter... Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I'm going to move through this pretty fast, so pay attention, please. Sean, can you repeat this question? His question is, talking about in the pre-wrath view, that the rapture and the second coming are the same event, and that they happen right prior to the day of the Lord's wrath. And he's asking Why? Why would God do that? Why would he have the rapture and the second coming be the same thing? Is that your question? Okay? I'm going to answer that. Because in my mind, in the scripture, it's clearly the same thing. Okay? Now, I, I would point you to the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, where I think you can find the same principle, but I think it's more clearly taught in Luke 17. Luke 17... Uh, verses 22 and following. And he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Now follow me. Jesus is going to talk about his second coming. And he's, he's going to use Noah and Lot as two examples from the Old Testament about what happens and how God brings about his wrath on the earth. Okay? And subsequently delivers his righteous ones. Okay? Who are Noah and Lot. Okay? So in this sense... They are types of the church and the rapture. That's what I am telling you right now. 
So, he says, verse 27, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, and they were planting, and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that here's how it went. Noah and his people were marrying, eaten, given in marriage until the day he entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. On the self-same day that God shut the door on the ark, the wicked were drowned. Okay? This couldn't be more clearly in the teaching of Jesus when he says, until the day Noah entered the ark. And just so we don't get that mixed up, this is what he says about Lot. He says, it was happening the same way in the time of Lot. Everybody was just going on about their business, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day... That Lot went out from Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So here's the point. The point is that everybody's just going through their typical things of life, right? Mm -hmm. And Christ, or, or I'm sorry, the angel comes and takes Lot by the hand, and they are literally running out of the city as fire and sulfur are raining down. Okay? It's the same thing happened in the time of Noah. God came to deliver Noah from his wrath upon the whole earth. And what did he do? He put Noah in the ark and he, God, closed the door. And that selfsame day, at that time, right then and there, the fountains of the great deep broke open and came and swept the whole planet away. Okay? So this is why I believe that when he comes and takes his own, he, at that selfsame time, pours out his wrath upon the unbelieving world. Now, if you look at the Olivet Discourse, specifically this um, this little chart I made for you right here, you'll see these things happening as Jesus is explaining what happens. And he says, there's going to be great tribulation, he says, and then there's going to be signs in the heavens, and the sun won't give its light, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And he will send forth his angels with a loud trumpet call and gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So there's these signs in the heavens. Then Christ returns. He gathers his elect. And then what happens? This whole discussion about Noah and Lot and the wicked being destroyed on the self-same day. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't, but see, wouldn't that, you, you call that the wrath of God, that 36 through 41? Mm-hmm. That's more. Wouldn't that be more in the rapture part? Wouldn't that be considered part of the, uh, what you would consider the rapture? And the only part would be the day, the day of the Lord would be verse 35. Right, but Jesus' point is, is that 
he's using Noah as a type of when the wrath of God comes and how he delivers his people. And he uses in the same language in Matthew 24, on the day that right. Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them all. So there's a crossover of these two events in this in this part, in this passage. You're saying on this day when he takes his out, then this is the day there's the destruction. When he yes. takes his away, there will be the destruction. So it's actually the rapture and the wrath of God are the rapture, the wrath of God. It's like, pew, both, the, I mean... One and then the other. And that's his question. Why do I believe that? Right. These I, are scriptures. I, yeah. I was just saying that I, when I read it, it looked like to me the rapture would also be included in that 36 through 41 that you are calling the day of the Lord. It is. Yeah. It is. And Jesus is using that teaching to show, if you will, the outworking of those events. Okay? Was that clear? Yeah, I was. Okay, so did I answer your question? Is there something about the way I answered the question that, that is unclear? Not that you agree with it, just... Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to disagree or anything. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to understand the view. I understand that there... Like in the Old Testament times, Moses and his family were pulled into the ark, right? Mm-hmm. And they were protected during that time. From? From the flood. The wrath of God. Right. Okay, so are you saying that's the same thing for the church? That exactly. That during Thus the pre-wrath view. Christ comes. He raptures the church. The church comes to be with him at that same time. There are many prophecies that talk about Christ returning with his church to do what? To destroy wicked and ungodly men. And that so he gathers his company of saints together Okay, in the air, uh-huh. thus shall we be with the Lord forever. And at that time is the outpouring of his wrath upon the wicked. Okay. That's, so, that's so what I'm are, saying. Who are the, who, who are the Lot people of the church? I don't, I don't understand that part. Lot is the church in that view, in that type. He's getting taken out of the wrath and protected. So you're saying and those who are left behind are being destroyed. So you're, you're saying both types of men are, are different aspects of the rapture? No, I'm sorry. I'm simply saying that Noah is a type and a shadow of the rapture. And that Lot is a type and a shadow of the rapture. And they're not exact parallels. They're just like any other Old Testament type or shadow. They, they give a sense of the meaning of the whole kind of a thing. Jerry? One other uh, part to answer that question is... The word coming is parousia. Okay, so when the when the disciples asked them, asked him, what will be the sign of your, what's the sign of the end of the age, and what will be the signs of your coming, parousia? When scholars look to see how that word parousia is used in other writings outside of the Bible, it means to come and stay to conduct business. So it doesn't mean come, go, to come back again. It means coming and staying to conduct business. That was the normal, everyday usage of the word perusala. And that's what the disciples asked him, and that's what he was answering. He could have said, oh, wait a minute, it's not one coming, it's two comings. It's a rapture and then a second coming. But he tied everything into one single coming because the word means come, conduct business. 
And, and all premillennialists will agree that at the second coming of Christ, he comes to, to shatter the wicked and to set up his kingdom. The difference between pre-trib and pre-wrath would be that the pre-wrathers believe that there's this distinction between the great tribulation and the day of the Lord and that those things happen at the self-same time, that he, he takes his church off of the earth and then pours out his wrath upon the earth. Thus, the church is not appointed unto wrath. Okay, Karen? Okay. So, the wrath, I guess I'm getting a little confused now because if the rapture and the second coming are happening at the same time, then his wrath is poured out. So, is the day of the Lord happening at the second coming as well? <coughs> wrath and the day the of the Lord are equivalent. Okay, so the second coming and the day of the Lord are not synonymous. Excuse me. Here's what's confusing everybody. In the pre-wrath view, that's not the second coming. This is. All right. Does that make better sense? I probably confused everybody there. Okay, so... Second second coming happens right here. And And that this time of the day of the Lord is an extended period of time where, like, for instance, you can read Revelation chapter 16, and you have all these events happening, the sun being wiped out, and hailstones falling from heaven, and great earthquakes, and Christ is actually destroying the world full of unbelievers. And it's happening simultaneously. Okay, so we're raptured, and it starts at the very same time for a period of time. Yes, this period of time right here, called the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. In the prophets. Yeah, just having, I guess it was, having the second coming mark there was All right, thank you. Uh-huh. So where are we? <laughs> where are we? In glorified, resurrected bodies with Christ. He asked, where are we during that time of the day of the Lord? I answered, in glorified, resurrected bodies with Christ. And, and quite frankly, I could give you some obscure scriptures, but I believe the church will be involved that destruction of the wicked. Okay? Let me give you a little picture. Look in Exodus chapter 32, what happens when Christ returns, I'm sorry, Moses returns with Joshua, and the children of Israel are involved in in idolatrous worship of a calf. He gathers together the Levites, they strap on swords, and what do they do? And if you will, there's another type and shadow in my mind, of the return of Christ that gives us some general principles to look at. Okay? Sean, Jerry? I think further clarification will, will, will come into play if you <coughs> study the day of the Lord that is defined by the minor prophets. You see Isaiah talking about the day of the Lord. You see Joel, Amos, Zechariah, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Right. The commonality at the day of the Lord is when the sun goes black, the sun appears, or the sun goes black, the moon appears to be blood, and the stars fall from the heavens. That equals the sixth seal in Revelation chapter six. So it's the cosmic disturbances that always announce that the day of the Lord has arrived. When the day of the Lord arrives, all the unbelievers realize that God is getting ready to pour out His wrath. They know it's the end of the world because when the sun goes black, the moon appears to be blood, and the stars fall from the sky, the unbelievers actually become believers because they know that God's getting ready to pour out 
his wrath. And they, cry, they cry out, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us. Here he is in the sky. Why? Because the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So at that point, it's too late. Right. Yeah. Okay. He that? says at that point, it's too late. <laughs> Okay, let me. I gotta. I've gotta close this down. Okay. Yes, I believe at that point it's too late. Because there, there I also believe that no one will be saved after the rapture. Nobody. Zero. Zilcho. Okay, you got one chance. When Christ returns. If you if you read the parable of the ten virgins, you have five wise and five foolish. The five wise go to meet the bridegroom. The five foolish. The door is shut, and they stand outside, and they knock and plead, asking to be opened, and it cannot. If that's not enough for us to get that, go to Luke chapter 13, where you'll read explicitly in the teaching of Jesus the same principle. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door, because many will seek to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside and knock and plead and say, Sir, open up for us, but I will say, Away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's Luke chapter 13, verse 24 and 25. Okay, so one other thing. I want to ask you something. We're stirring up all kinds of cans of worms here. Is this something that is of great interest to you? I mean, because quite frankly, any one of these things, I, I could spend two or three classes talking about any one of these aspects of these events that, that we've gone through. Okay? But... I'm just trying to gauge in in your mind, okay, I'm considering what I'm going to be teaching next year, and this is our last class this year, so I'm just, let me ask you a couple of real general questions, and you answer this right off the bat. Do you have enough interest about this that you would be willing to come to a special session of teaching about these things so that I could expand on my view and differences that I might have with other premillennialists? Raise your hand. Special session. That might happen any time, I'm just suggesting. Uh, okay. And then the other thing would be, do you, have enough, do you have enough interest about this that you would like to see me go on in Sunday school talking about some of these things, yes or no? Yes. Got about half there. Okay. All right. Please, go ahead. Last question. Okay. Somebody else asked that same question a couple weeks ago. How important is it to God that we understand this if there's so much confusion about it? I'm going to give you my answer, okay? This is not confusing in the Bible. That's my answer. If you will undertake to carefully study these things, they all fall right into place. That's my view. Now, I'm not trying to be arrogant and say, I know this whole thing. I'm not trying to say that, okay? But with my understanding of these things, if, if one will spend due diligence studying these events and looking at all the scriptures, understanding the viewpoints of other believers, why they hold their viewpoints, what scriptures they look at, and get it, get a, a good picture of all these things, it is not unclear in the Bible. In my mind, it's very clear. So what I would say is the problem is a lack of careful Bible study. Okay? 
how important is it for, for us to know these things? Extremely important. Why? Because God put them in his Bible. They, they are the word of God. These are the words that came out of the mouth of Jesus. We need to know them. So well, we can quote them. So that's what I would say about that. Did, did I answer your question? Okay. In Revelation 1, it says you, know, you receive a blessing for, for knowing and understanding these Right. He says in Revelation 1, God there's a blessing knows. pronounced on anybody who will read the words of the prophecy of Revelation. Okay? I, I know you immediately, but I wanted to ask that question. I grappled with it over the last few weeks. Why I feel that way? Because I really Father, we thank you, Lord, for these rich prophecies that you've given us that challenge us and stretch us. Oh, Lord, they help us to grapple with your word, to know it better and better. I pray for each one of us, God, that we would continue to study these things, that we would know them well, that we would use them in our evangelistic efforts. Uh, God, that we would glorify you with our understanding of these things. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see them clearly. Give us insight. Give us discernment about these matters. Help us to make the distinctions in the various scriptures of the things that you have told us about. And I pray, God, that you'd give us a sincere and, and, and intense desire to know your word in all of its facets. God, from the beginning to the end, may we give ourselves wholly to your word, God. And may we turn off that profuse American tube. And may we be involved in your word, God. I pray, Father, that we would have a passion for your word. So that we would sit with our family and open it up and read it and proclaim it and acknowledge it and and worship you in the reading of your word. I pray that it would be the great hunger of our lives and of our families to gather and to learn and know and read and exalt your word. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.